2: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to a new episode of the New Books Network. My name is Victor Manin, and uh, I am pleased to welcome today uh, two professors, Professor Kirsten Niskanen and Michael Barani, to discuss their new book, Gender Embodiment and the History of Scholarly Persona, a collection of essays expanding on the concept of scientific persona and presenting a new set of historical case studies. So professors, thank you so much uh, for coming on the New Books Network. Uh, Professor Niskanen, you teach history at uh, Stockholm University, and Professor Barani, you teach history of science at the University of Edinburgh. Um, but before we start discussing your book, uh, I would like to give you some time, uh, maybe to share with us what led to what led you to uh, edit this volume on scholarly persona together. Um, so, uh, would you mind maybe explaining how the project came together and what were uh, your main objective? Uh, as you were working on this volume,
0: okay, I can start. Uh, I can say something about the project uh, that uh, that this uh, book relates to. It's a project called Scientific Persona in Cultural Encounters, and it was a, a project that was started by me and two colleagues, historian Minneke Bosch in uh, the Netherlands and Kat Wils in Belgium, and. Uh, Our aim when we started this project was to to discuss the unequal uh, power structures in academia and especially power structures in relation to gender and women. And we wanted to do this in a new way instead of focusing on obstacles that women have met in academic hierarchies uh, during the 20th century. Uh, when when universities opened for women and women started uh, entering universities as teachers and and uh, uh, scholars and scientists instead of um, focusing on the obstacles and problems that women have met, which has been discussed in much of gender history research and, and, and uh, uh, social historians have been in this area, uh, um, history of science, literature, there's vast literature on this topic, we wanted to, to pose questions about uh, what enables individuals to make academic careers. And this led us to the concept of persona. And the persona concept at that time, when we started our project 2013-14, it had been developed um, by historians of science at Max Planck Institute in uh, Göttingen, uh, about 10 years earlier, 2003. Uh, in order to discuss how how uh, science is embodied, and and, and uh, uh, to play to 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 make questions about the connection between individual scientists scientists and and, and uh, the content of science. So that is the background to this project that we started 2014-15, and we also. Um, employed three PhD candidates, they have uh, now all finished their PhD thesis, and then there were uh, the three of us uh, senior scholars. And during a shorter time we also had two um, younger scholars in our project, but unfortunately they, 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 they got other jobs, so, so they left the project on the way. And this book, this book is the result of the conference that we we organized within this project. Yep.
1: maybe I can say a bit uh, how I came to the project and um, sort of the uh, the involvement um, that led to the the book itself. Then, um, so I, I joined up with the um, the um, the work um, about halfway through the project, um, and by that point, um, Kirsty and the PIs had. Um, identified this concept of persona, had um, started to focus a lot on uh, the role of institutional histories and their interaction with uh, with gender and these dimensions of um, of identity and embodiment. Uh, And that was kind of my entry point into into the project. Um, I had been doing research on uh, mathematical institutions and mathematical funding bodies. There was a conference that a lot of the collaborators in the uh, SPICE project were participating in on Funding Bodies and Science, and I was presenting some work on how foundation officers um, basically built assumptions about gender inequality into how they evaluated candidates. Um, and uh, Kirstie, um, uh, after the talk, uh, identified this as, as something that would be uh, relevant to the conversations they were having, and um, uh, kindly invited me to join this um uh, the scientific persona conference um, that was being planned for the, the later stages of the project um, and most of the contributions in the volume were as, as Kirsey said, uh, presentations at, at this conference which which grew out of that that broader project. Uh, the project also had uh, a really excellent special issue uh, of, uh, of a journal. actually it was right it was two special issues um, before this book came out. Uh, Looking at various dimensions uh, of the work, and of course, also resulted in some some very excellent PhD theses. Um, But this book was uh, taking um, the focus on um, uh, on these uh, dimensions of of scholarship and persona in the context of uh, modern science and modern scientific institutions.
2: Well, thank thank you, thank you so much for this for for this little history and this background uh, on, on on the project itself. And really, the book seems to be. Uh, a, a capstone for a project that lasted at least at least 10 years if I if, if I'm uh, if, if I'm counting it right um so uh, what 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 I found a, a quote that I found particularly interesting um in uh, in the introduction uh and maybe you know will, will help us understand what the ambitions of of the project is if you put it uh, more um, in, in a wider, context of history of science, history of knowledge, sociology of science. Um, you both write in the introduction that you see the history of scholarly persona as occupying a vital space in a cult, in cultural theories of science and scholarship. Um, so uh, maybe um, Michael, uh, if you want to start, uh, do you mind maybe expanding a little bit on what you mean here by vital space? Uh, what kind of questions and perspective the history of scholarly persona can unlock?
1: Um thanks victor i'm I'm so glad that you latched onto that quote um because it represents um uh, this this attempt to distill sort of what the volume is trying to accomplish and uh, like many historians um and you'll have seen in the introduction, um we really like to inhabit puns and the sort of the potential um that language uh, gives us to identify different kinds of connections. so the first meaning of vital space is really this the space of the living breathing. Um, the vitality of science uh, and its um, and, and science and scholarship and its location in um, in human bodies um, and in human communities that uh, are defined in this way by by their vitality by their living quality. So we see the study of personae as precisely that link between the scale of the individual um, scientific worker, the individual scholar, and the institutions in which they take a part in the broader communities of practice in the broader world of scholarship. And indeed this, this much larger scale of the you know, the universal kinds of knowledge or the, even the disembodied kinds of knowledge that um, that scholars aim to produce. So that's one sense of, of the vital space, but the other dimension that I think really came out in the conversations in the conference. And as, um, as the volume was coming together and as the chapter authors were uh, reviewing drafts and talking about what the interventions were, uh, was the role of the scientific persona concept and the scholarly persona concept uh, as bringing together a lot of different um, disciplinary perspectives and methodological perspectives, interested in the relationship between knowledge and practice, knowledge and people, knowledge and communities, um, and taking um, always with, with the link of the sort of the living person in the middle, um, using that as a way of, uh, of connecting uh, a wide range of different disciplinary communities that the contributors to the volume came from, uh, whether it's from communication studies or the sociology of science or the history of science or the history of gender um, or the history, uh, sort of national histories, um, or different different dimensions of historiography. And that made it a really exciting volume to work on about thinking about where the intersections of those different, um, different scholarly communities um, came together around the identities and the forms occupied by um, by scholars in this context
2: well i i, I really appreciate the fact that you uh, mentioned the uh multidisciplinary nature of the volume itself because at times when, when i was reading it uh, i was i was just asking myself in the back of my mind is, am i Am I reading a, a history of science book? Am I reading a, a, a sociology of, of of science book? Uh, it, because constantly there there seems to be so many different input from so many different disciplines that are that are inside the book, and I think the the book does a great job as. Um, Not necessarily feeling the need to particularly situate itself into one discipline, but to consider on the con, on the contrary, the concept itself of persona as the platform that is gonna uh, bring all these different approaches and knowledge together in a very harmonious way. I'll say, uh, at, at least as, as we are going through all the different chapters, and and I think your your remark here um, really uh, is a perfect transition for for my next question. And maybe I'll, I'll start with Kirsty, but I, and I think Michael, you can also uh, contribute to that one as well. Um, and, and it's the fact that the. And, and I think you could feel it in the, the quote itself a vital space, is that the fact that the persona is both, to me at least, a very concrete and also elusive object of research. It's very concrete because, uh, I mean, any kind of social life requires uh, an, in, interactions between individuals and institutions, and it requires individuals to forge themselves some sort of quote-unquote mask. Uh, but at the same time, it's an extremely elusive object because persona are not ready-made masks, and they evolve, they change. They stand in a very fluid space between social institutions and individual personalities. So, how does one study a persona? Uh, I, I think to me that that seems to me a very a very interesting question of methodology here. Uh, so, uh, maybe Kirsty, if, if you don't mind, do, do you mind sharing with us uh, some of your some of of your methodological approach to the study of Persona?
0: Mm-hmm. I can start by saying that one thing when we um, created this project is that if we placed the core project in the context of internalization of scholarship and science during the interwar years, the, when, when international contacts intensified during these years, and also <clears throat> Uh, our discovery was that, that uh, the shift in European science and scholarship shifted from, from continent to, to the United States and, and large um, uh, American um, uh, funders entered the scientific scene in Europe as financiers of research. And here I come to, to one of my methodological points that we discovered that when we were first discussing personas, so we were often discussing it as a kind of personal trait, as a kind of personal qualities, repertoires that individuals have to, have to appropriate <clears throat> in order to, to uh, perform. A uh, uh, credible and, and reliable uh, personality or persona that is accepted in the uh, scientific and, and scholarly communities. But we also discovered when we we delved into this question of institutions that institutions also create persona, of course, and funding agencies create persona, which is one of the themes that is. Um, um, uh, that is in our book. So that is my first um, methodological point, is this combination of uh, um, identity formation on an individual level, and also the institutions that contribute to creating, shaping, uh, and, and modifying, molding identities. So that's one thing, and that uh, methodologically, it has in our studies um, led us to, to um, work on on, on uh, uh, di- with with sources on different kinds of sources, from institutions to biographical autobi- autobiographical sources. So that's one thing. Yeah. I, I, do, 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 you, you wanted to continue? No, I I give the word to Michael. <laughs>
1: Thanks. Yeah, so I was, I was going to pick up on exactly that point where you ended, which is um, one of the key insights of the project is the role of the persona as this link between the individual and the institutional. And methodologically, what that means, um, and we see both examples of this in the, um, in the volume, is um, some authors started with the sort of biographical scale and a biographical approach to understand how specific people... Um, Using a combination of personal archives, diaries, memoirs, um, autobiographies, um, but also their uh, records of their institutional context, how they created an identity for themselves, and then reading outward, looking at how that engaged with or inhabited different types or expectations or roles or other things that we identify with this scale of the persona. And then a different set of contributions started with institutions and how they define. uh, how they defined what they were looking for, who they were trying to create, um, how they created different kinds of templates or um, systems or structures that people could operate. So as Kirsi mentioned, funding bodies, um, other kinds of um, uh, groups that uh, evaluated people. Um, there are some studies that um, really usefully tack between the, um, uh, an individual person and a specific institution. So a really, uh, a really good example of that is, uh, is, um, Anna Cabanel's chapter about, um, a specific, um, person and, a, a Hungarian botanist and an association, um, that sponsored her travels, um, and, um, how this, um, this botanist's travels. Um, interacted with the sort of emerging norms and expectations of that, um, of that institution to create this idea of the university woman as a kind of archetype that was um, building on and challenging um, other kinds of opportunities for, um, for a persona in that time period and in that space. Um, so often what ends up happening, whether the chapters start at an institutional scale or at a personal scale, is they often end up um, moving between them as they try to explore where the, where the persona um, comes out. I, I really appreciate the fact that you
2: both mentioned the importance of obviously the 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 internationalization of science, or at least um, at least its expansion uh, in in the in uh, in the twentieth century. Uh, but also that you and and one of the themes that you your book is really. Um, addressing is is the theme of money <laughs> is uh, where uh, how is uh, um, scholarly work being financed and how does that uh, financial force is is shaping uh, different personas um, and, and trajectories? And, and I think uh, this this leads to my to my next question because the book, uh, is, is essentially organized in, in three parts. And each of these three parts uh, focuses on uh, what you identify as being um, important conte- contextual conditions that play a role in the construction and reinvention of, of scholarly persona. And these, these conditions are uh, travels, uh, bodies, and masculinities. Um, and, um, but, but, but you talk a lot about money. All across, and so, so I think the the theme of money itself is is running through all of these uh, all of these parts, and obviously, each of these contextual conditions that make uh, a different part of the book um, are obviously constantly intertwined in each case that you study, right? It, it simply is maybe a, a main lens uh, that that each of these some of these chapters are, are, are taking, um, but do you mind maybe explaining? how uh, these three parts came about? Uh, What did you see in travels, bodies, and masculinities as being really operative um, lens for the study of scholarly uh, persona? And and maybe, Kirsty if you don't don't mind starting, and then Michael, if you want to jump in, of course.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, The first question of of travel, uh, people on the move, I think we call it, uh, the first part of the, the the book, is exactly about this theme of internalization that we discovered was important in the interwar years. And our own studies in the project, which is Kat Wills and, and Peter Huistra, their study, and also Anna Cabanel's study that was discussed, uh, that Ma- Ma- Michael mentioned, uh, and also my own study. They all have to deal with... with, with um, internalization with people who are traveling with with the international um, funding that creates both possibilities but also maybe in some cases restrictions and then one of the articles in the in the book uh, is also a fascinating article by um, john hennessy about the the um, william uh, clark uh, in in hokkaido uh, and and uh, so so that was ob- an obvious theme during this time was uh, the movements people ideas um, identities moving across borders and it's also in michael's article about uh, the mathematicians uh, and then the second part um, embodiment it's kind of in inherent in the the theme of of scholarly or scientific persona. This interaction between individuals, individuals as as bodies, uh, habits, traits, uh, what we are as human beings, and the, the ideas that we produce. Also, on, and also in a very concrete level, in one of the articles, which is Heini Hakosalos about uh, the medical persone, where where she very in a very nice way uh, demonstrates how medical students really have to be able to appropriate kind of medical persona, which is uh, physically uh, uh, demanding, challenging. Um, uh, enterprise for, for the students. Uh, and then the third part about masculinities, it has to do uh, with gender, of course, and that the, the academic environments during these years that we focus on interwar years and the end of 19th century were male environments. Women uh, were in minor Minority positions in this um, uh, uh, in, my, in academic uh, settlements. So, so, and also that uh, the question of masculinity is an understudied uh, um, part of, of academic life, I would say. So we, we uh, thought it's it's interesting to focus on masculinities and how to create masculinities in different ways, academic masculinities.
2: I, I think, uh, so j- j- just jumping in very quickly, I think this is the point uh, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll discuss a little bit uh, after, but uh, especially the, the masculinity uh, part, I, I thought in, in your piece, uh, uh, Kirsty, I thought it was very interesting because um, in the case of philosophy in particular, this is usually something that goes unnoticed, although, uh, Although most of, of uh, the philosophical corpus and 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 uh, and the care and the and the uh, people being studied are usually male, uh, and this is sometimes a question that, that that seems so obvious that is actually not being addressed. Uh, but I, I stop right here and, and we'll jump uh, jump uh, back in uh, with uh, Michael.
1: Yeah. So I just um wanted to add maybe that um as as anyone who's uh you know put together a project like this knows. There are lots of different ways to um, organize things. A lot of the chapters um, cut across the different themes. I think Kiersey's is a great example of one that could have been in any of the three sections. Um, and we've played around with a lot of different uh, schemes of organization, um, different ways of, uh, of fitting things together. Um, but I think the, the structure that, uh, that was settled on in the end brings out some of these um, methodological and analytic insights in this really useful way. So as, um, as you picked up on, um, the third part about masculinities, um, for me, uh, reading that and engaging with um, the work uh, described there um, really brought out the complexity and multidimensionality uh, of masculinity as something that is often taken as a kind of default or background um, or assumed status in um, in the history of scholarship, uh, and those multiple layers of complexity um, that the different chapters bring to that question uh, really drew out some of the the um, the significance of using the persona concept as a way of, of interrogating the relationship between individuals and, and the knowledge they produce. Um, I thought uh, the um, section on embodiment the, in part two um, really came together almost as a kind of um, back and forth conceptually uh, that, you know, so starting with, starting with anatomical dissections and then going to, um, you know, what, what is possibly the most opposite thing to an anatomical dissection that you can have, um, the idea of the inborn sort of mental quality um, and how these are part of um, historically a very same period um, conceptually very similar con- um, conversations um, but involved in the creation of quite different kinds of personae uh, and um, and their enrollment into very different professional and academic structures of, of knowledge making and then kind of to cap that um, to bring that, that exact kind of dialogue into the present with um, the much more sociological and philosophical uh, even study by um, Barber and Ankeny and Kluva and uh, Kandui, uh that looked at um, the, the presentation of biographies um, online from uh, these public-facing scientists, um, sort of brought out the ways that um, that bodies once enacted or suppressed or denied or conceptualized um, and sort of spread throughout the world in this almost disembodied way. Uh, and then, as Kirstie said, that first section... Uh, was really a reflection of I think one of the big, um, big themes of the conference that led to this volume that um, came out in the conversation there, which was this fundamental importance of international movement as this place where money ends up mattering a lot because international movement, especially in the periods that we were talking about, is just ridiculously expensive uh, as a major part of um, the the material costs of forming a scholarly persona, um, but also ends up becoming a context where different kinds of cultural signifiers, different kinds of national identities, um, different bases for personal identities uh, really come to the fore because uh, moving people from one context to another um, changes the context and assumptions through which persona are built and identified and interpreted. Um, So that more than, um, uh, or that really directly uh, reflects the, the conversations from from the, uh, the
2: conference that this book came out of. Well, I, I appreciate that you uh, throughout throughout the, your, your your explanation of that of that um, organization of the book around these three themes. Um, that you've been quoting and uh, and mentioning the the, the works of, of all the other contributors to the volume, because I think that one point that's really particularly enjoyable with the book is that it deals with so many different scholarly disciplines, uh, such as experimental psychology, pedagogy, history, medicine, mathematics, philosophy, etc. Um, and uh, since we don't have the time sadly to go over <laughs> obviously all of these uh, all of these chapters, I suggest that at least. Um, we focus on on your on your um, on your respective chapters uh, and your contri- contributions. Sorry to uh, to the volume, uh, and I'll start maybe with with, with Kirsty, um, where uh, your 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 chapter, which is a, the closing chapter of of, of the book, um, uh, deals with the the construction and and, and the metamorphosis of of. Uh, one uh, 20th century Swedish uh, f- philosopher, and 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 you break down the the, the persona, and you you, uh, you you break down the persona of the isolated philosopher, uh, which which I think is such such a an interesting trope in the history of of philosophy, in the history of of deep thinkers in particular. So so if you don't mind, maybe to just maybe re- retrace uh, very briefly maybe the 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 trajectory of of that philosopher. I'm, I I hope I'm not pronouncing his name wrong. I think it's uh, Tegan or, or Tegan. Uh, you, you'll correct me on that. But, but do you mind maybe retracing the, the trajectory of his uh, scholarly persona and explaining um, what you found interesting in it and maybe what place does it hold in your own research?
0: Mm-hmm. I, I start with the, the uh, last question, the, the the place of this chapter in my own research. And this chapter is actually a part of the larger study, which is about the force of money, to put it uh, simply. It's, it's about um, funding, research funding, and how research funding... Um, uh, contributed to create the the modern research university, actually, at Stockholm University. The Stockholm University at this time was not really a university yet. It was a poor university college, completely dependent on external funding. And in the 1920s, the Rockefeller Foundation emerged as a research funder in Europe and also in Sweden. And they funded research, both in natural sciences and in social sciences. And they basically built social science research at Stockholm University. And this chapter is, is a part of that, that um, uh, larger context where social sciences were built at Stockholm University. There were <clears throat> very few um, uh, social scientists and, and very few emerging disciplines uh, and Einar Tegn was a philosopher. He was um, uh, he was uh, he he wrote his dissertation in Uppsala University, which is an old university, a very traditional university, which I explain in the chapter where he he created this persona of an isolated philosopher who was sitting in his ivory tower and and and. Uh, looking at the world from the outside <clears throat> and he very much incorporated this kind of philosophy persona in his own person so he actually as a person acted like uh, a, a, a very uh, you know out of the world philosopher person uh, uh, it uh, was very evident in his marriage He isolated himself, uh, writing his uh, great book, uh, and and, uh, did not have contact with his children and so on. So all this changed when he came to the United States, uh, and uh, as a Rockefeller Fellow in the end of the 1930s, 1940, actually, and, uh, uh, and, and encountered a completely new world of socially and, uh, and, and uh, politically interested uh, social scientists and, and philosophers and took great uh, um, impact on, on, on during his stay in the United States. He stayed there for two years due to the war and he became a pioneer of uh, interdisciplinary social science research. Stockholm University and also in Sweden and uh, uh, also um, promoted uh, uh, the creation of sociology and soci- sociology studies at Stockholm University. So he 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 um, experienced a, a personal metamorphosis. There, there, there
2: is an, an aspect that really appreciate about your chapters or, or the photographs um, and and I thought they were very very compelling uh, a piece of evidence to seize the uh, the persona of the um, isolated philosopher in particular uh, the, the 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 I think I think there's a photograph of him uh, in his uh, in his study uh, lying down uh, surrounded with books. Um, and, And there's another one with his family where essentially every member of the family are disconnected. It's a very awkward family picture, I feel, but extremely telling because uh, although they are posing together in the same space, they are actually occupying a very distinct space uh, for each of them. And I think it, it's, it, it said a lot and commented a lot on uh, everything you were writing about this, this uh Philosopher persona. Uh, do, do you have any, any any more of these of these pictures? Uh, I, I'm, I'm wondering again about this question of methodology. we were talking about archives, personal archives. We we're talking about institutional archives, but there are also these visual piece of evidence. Uh, d- did you find more on on on, on Tegan, or is, is it something really hard to uh, to locate?
0: No, they no, not about his family life, and not about uh, no, not no very very little pictures. Very few pictures, unfortunately. He has an enormous archive at the uh, Uppsala University Library. Enormous archive with letters and and um, all the material that he brought with him from from the United States when he when he experienced it, met- metamorphosis, when he was <clears throat> visiting all the major uh, social science institutions in the in the U.S. <clears throat> So the archive is enormous, but not not these kinds of photos. I see, I see, I see. <laughs> <Sorry>. they're, they're,
2: <laughs> no, of course, they're, they're they're extremely, I think, precious to to again uh, locate the persona and how 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 it was fashioned. So uh, I really appreciate that they were included in the chapter. Uh, so let, let's let's go ahead with, uh, with with Michael and your your um, your, your own chapter on um, uh, persona of the mid twentieth century uh, global mathematics. And uh, in, in your intro- introduction to the chapter, uh, you explain that across their history, uh, and I'm quoting here, across their history in multifarious contexts, mathematician- mathematicians have been depicted as character- characteristically young or old, male or female, playful or serious. And uh, I think inside this <laughs> wide variety of historical mathematician persona, what, interest you, what interested you in particular? in this mid-20th century global context.
1: Um, Yes, that's a a great way to um, motivate the the chapter that there was this particular famous quote that has come to define uh, mathematics in this modern context, this um, quote from uh, G.H. Hardy, that mathematics is a young man's game. And I think the, the quote has weighed heavily, not just on mathematics, but on the historiography of mathematics. So a lot of uh, investigations into the history of mathematics have sort of taken it for granted that the sort of the natural mathematician, the obvious subject of mathematics, is this playful, sometimes otherworldly young man, and uh, especially in, in writing uh, popular images of mathematics or writing about um, uh, writing about mathematics uh, in the history of mathematics um, outside of the context of scholarly history, and I think. The the starting point of of, um, the research and the the argument for this chapter, for me, was to historicize this idea and to say, wait a minute, this idea that the natural mathematician is a young, playful man is an extremely recent historical development, much more recent than I think even most historians of mathematics um, tended to to assume or tended to present uh, in their own uh, writing about uh, the, the figure of the mathematician. Um, so part of the article is to very specifically identify the figure of the young, playful man in this sort of parallel development to the one Kirstie is writing about, the uh, philanthropization of mathematical funding in the 1920s and the 1930s, and the way that certain um, corporate philanthropy expectations of uh, who is worth funding in mathematics end up being transmuted in this uh, kind of strange, complex way into an ideal for, um, for who the standard bearer of the mathematics discipline should be. So part of the chapter is to then draw on uh, a pretty wide literature in the historiography of mathematics, looking at different kinds of figures and identities associated with mathematics, and just to uh, really disrupt the idea that um, the young man's game has been a longstanding hegemonic uh, cultural uh, persona or identity or ideal and say and uh, to displace the idea that it, that it, it has this longer standing um, and then really try to, to build it up and establish uh, where that idea come from came from, how it came to seem like the only kind of identity uh, that mattered in mathematics, which um, I think really only does happen in the mid 20th century and specifically in the context of globalization in the conditions and the goals and the ideals that made mathematics also much more recently than people tend to assume or tend to uh, believe um, into a discipline that has this kind of global dimension. Um, mathematics has only really had um, a character, but what I see as a global character, um, since since really the mid-20th century uh, in, um, in thinking about um, you know when, when do we get a world where a mathematician expects their work to be relevant to another mathematician on another continent. Um, That happens much later for mathematics than for um, most kinds of scholarship, um, uh, most kinds of science in particular. And then the the chapter follows what the implications of that transformation are um, by looking at a very specific persona that was um, not identified with a specific mathematician Um, but rather a collective of mathematicians who publish under the pseudonym of Nicolas Bourbaki. Um, So this is a a French group of mathematicians. um, And they are also the subject of a great deal of writing, both um, scholarly writing and um, popular exposition in a lot of different forms. And one aspect of this that I identify as important is the extent to which the success of the Bourbaki persona depends on its kind of double nature, the ability of people who interact with Vorbaki to interact simultaneously with the, um, the elderly, vaguely Eastern European, um, uh, kind of gnomic, difficult, um, um, abstraction-obsessed uh, figure of the pseudonymous mathematician, simultaneous to their impression of the characteristically youthful, energetic, playful, male uh, mathematicians who collaborated and published under Borbaki's name. And so the rest of the chapter traces out the um, kind of attacking between this double persona of Borbaki, the pseudonym, and Borbaki, the collective, um, the group, and how that um, shows the power and potential and um, kind of transgressive possibility that mathematicians found in um, this relatively newly hegemonic um, ideal of who a mathematician could be in the mid-20th century, which really, I argue, transformed um, how mathematics was done, who did mathematics, but also what kind of mathematics they produced. Um, and that's uh, something that um, that I've taken forward in, um, in other aspects of my research program, trying to understand how this global transformation of mathematics in the 20th century really changed mathematics as well as where it's found and who pursued it and how
2: this um, I, I, I I really appreciate um, the, um, the the fact that, that you mentioned that this research on the the scholarly persona of the mathematician as a young playful man um, although it appears to be still uh, it's still pervasive today in in, in many ways in, in, in mathematics um that essentially, your research tries to debunk that and maybe uh, create a, a new, if I can quote again, create a new vital space for the emergence of new persona in mathematics. And I think that that was another interesting tension in the book um, that that I would like to address for this final question. I would like both of you maybe to to contribute on that one. Uh, but uh, and and it starts from a very personal note because as I was reading the book, I, I couldn't. Help myself, but but think about my my own personal uh, situation in uh, in academia. Uh, being an early career scholar, uh, you're constantly faced with the necessity of forging a, a persona for yourself, and and I never personally really thought about my own position in those terms until I, I really delved into the book uh, and look and uh, explore their history of it with uh, with all the chapters that you that you brought together uh, so for that thank you very much <laughs> but on, on, on top of this uh, I was really interested in uh, what what you think the, the research on, on on scholarly persona could um, in, in which way could it benefit? academia in in a much more practical standpoint than simply um than than, than simply on the you know the construction of new knowledge etc what what could what could what benefits could it contribute uh you think to the academia in general uh maybe Kirsty if you if you wanted to take that one first and then Michael mm, i i
0: i think it's at least on two levels um, firstly i think that, that it's um, important to be aware, aware of conscious of that we create we shape persona all the time whether we are conscious of it or not i mean when i was a young scholar i was not really conscious that i was i was uh, i was making a, a, a shaping a persona of my own intuitively I had an idea when I was teaching, for example, that okay, now I am teaching, I'm 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 creating, I'm shaping my persona as a as a teacher, but I didn't have that, that vocabulary, but, but I have not had an had an in, intuitive understanding that that so something is happening here, although I had could not formulate it in, in words. But that, that's one thing I think it's important. Another thing is that we actually really create and shape our personas so um, um, explicitly today in the new media, which is the, the, the question that is addressed in, in the article by uh, Kim or Rachel Ankeny, Caroline Pliva, Jodie Conduit. I think it's a very interesting and important article in that sense. Our institutions create and contribute to shaping our personas, uh, and, and we also do that. Uh, and maybe we should do, do it in a, in a more organized and conscious way.
1: Yeah, the um the question as you phrased it, Victor, is it was a, a absolutely uh, very much an, an alive question in the project as it came together. Um, I think uh as as Kirsty described at the beginning, um this this broader project about scientific persona was also a project about uh that, that was involved directly in uh in training younger scholars, the PhD students on the project. Um my own involvement with the project started uh, when I was a postdoc, and then I uh, did a lot of the, the um, activity on editing the volume when I was just starting in my first uh, long-term academic position uh, here in Edinburgh, and um, being part of those conversations that crossed career stages, that were in conversation with um, uh, with collaborators and also mentors like uh, Kirsty, who were really actively thinking about how these kinds of historical studies. Um, were itself, part of the process of persona formation uh, for the community of scholars involved in the project, really made that um, that idea central. And if I say, if I have one recommendation for early career scholars, um, is find a collaborator like uh, like Kirstie, um, uh, who's just made this such an enriching and um, and valuable experience of uh, working on all the different dimensions that go into um, producing an in, in edited volume, but from a really from a perspective of um, of mentorship and care and collaboration. Um, it was really absolutely enriching experience, um, for, for me on this project. Um, I would say in terms of some of the, um, uh, some of the other dimensions that this, uh, that this work and the, the, the themes from the different chapters have to speak to our, our present moment. One thing that stands out for me is, um, the way that, uh, scholars are evaluated in the way that um, scholars are sort of sorted and portrayed has really direct effects, both from the stated assumptions and also the unstated things, things that are not made a part of evaluations, application forms, um, other forms of of presentation and ranking and sorting. Um, So a defining feature of an early career scholar's life is trying to fit yourself into the different categories and boxes and and. Uh, and profiles of um, job opportunities and fellowships and funding applications. And it really stood out for me in this project how um, uh, how the whole mesh of assumptions and, um, and ideas about what makes good scholarship and what makes a good pursuer of scholarship um, have these very far-reaching implications that compound over the course of a career, over the course of one's training. Um, and in um, in across in academic institutions, um, uh, to to shape what's possible for individual scholars. And this is a last note, I think, for both of us, but uh, probably in different ways and coming from different perspectives. The um, uh, the importance of feminist politics and feminist epistemology as both something that informs how we write and how we research, but also how we approach our um, our activity within academic institutions and within collaborations was um, was a really important part of this project and I think something that's visible across uh, across this book and across the chapters um, and taking the role uh, specifically of embodied and gendered identity as something that pervades all the work we do is something that um, uh, something that that, that plays out really sort of highlights the stakes of um, from from the smaller scale to the larger scale of, of academic work and academic scholarship
2: well, thank you so much to, to the both of you for 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 coming and and discussing your, the, this new book, gender embodiment and the history of scholarly persona. It, it seemed based based on 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 both of your remarks that it. it it is such a wholesome project, <laughs> as well as an awesome project. Uh, if I if, if I may play on that. Um, but again, thank you so much for coming. Thank you so much for for sharing your insights on the books. Thank you so much for sharing the context behind it and the place it holds in your respective research. Um, thank you again.
1: Thanks, a lot,
0: Victor. Thank you.